Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today, for episode 16, my guest is writer, journalist, and historian Bradley Klein. If you hang around golf architecture long enough, you're going to run into Bradley Klein sooner rather than later. One of the discipline's most prominent journalists, Klein began writing a weekly column for Golf Week magazine in 1988 and joined the magazine as the full-time architectural editor in 1999, leaving behind a career in academia. He founded Golf Week's Superintendent News that year and also created Golf Week's Top 100 Modern and Classic Courses lists, as well as the Raiders panel that analyzes them. A few months ago, he embarked on a new phase of his career, joining Golf Advisor and the Golf Channel as a senior writer. The author of numerous books, including Discovering Donald Ross and Wide Open Fairways, as well as a new title due out this summer concerning the courses of Devereux Emmett, Klein is known as a highly discerning, highly intelligent, slightly contrarian interpreter of golf architecture and trends. He has expertise in agronomy, maintenance, and course construction, holds a master's and a PhD in political science, consults historic clubs across the country on restoration, caddied on the PGA Tour, and has been an associate designer for a handful of golf courses, including Old McDonald at Bandon Dunes. Simply put, if you're going to talk golf and architecture with Brad Klein, you better come prepared. We had an entertaining conversation. He shared some stories. We spoke quite a bit about the influence of the golf media on contemporary design, as well as topics that have been important to him throughout his career, like affordable course construction and golf that reflects the values of its community. It's my view that golf media is in need of more of the kind of independent authoritative commentary and critiques that Klein has provided throughout his career. Klein has never been shy about taking a position, and you'll get an understanding of that coming up next. So let's get into it. Here's my discussion with Bradley Klein. After 30 years at Golf Week, uh, where you kind of became known as, the way I looked at it anyway, was you were sort of America's professor of golf course architecture. I've been a, a fan of your writing for a long time, but you recently moved from Golf Week over to Golf Advisor and, and Golf Channel. And I'm wondering, what can we glean from that move? Is it a better situation for you personally, or have you come to some sort of realization that digital communication is the best way for golf media to move forward? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, 30 years is a long time to be doing anything, and uh, I had started as an academic and then was doing, uh, working at Golf Week and other, doing a lot of other magazine writing, but uh, the um, part-time uh, from in the early 90s, I became full-time in 1999 when I quit academia and put all that aside, and so I was with the magazine for 19 years, I saw a lot of changes, and uh, you know, it's just a combination of things. Personally, it's a better move for me, uh, and um, I just wanted to—I just wanted to try something different. You know, I kind of knew where Golf Week was going. It's a combination of print and um, the digital. We were moving more toward digital at the time under the ownership of uh, USA Today, and they were uh, subsidizing it, they were funding it, and uh, you know, keeping it going, which was great, and it was doing very well for a magazine. But um, I, it's a combination of things. It's um, I think I just, at the age of 63, I wanted to try something a little more challenging, and um, I got tired of the travel, I have to say. I was doing a tremendous amount of hosting of uh, Raider events, and while I enjoyed the people, uh, when you're doing 15, 12 to 15, four or five day events, some of them a week long, 
and you know you've been to all these places many many times it just became um, tiring so uh, you know it, uh, when you travel 150 days a year it wears you down I got grandkids I love my wife Jane I want to spend time with them so uh, this enabled me to uh, do a little less traveling as well so, uh-huh. so you you've stepped away from from the organizing golf week's ratings which have been tremendously interesting and influential I imagine is that hard for you to step away from that it's something that you created no, actually, it was surprisingly <laughs> easy. Um, uh, first of all, uh, and yeah, I built it up from nothing. Uh, it became a big program. We had a lot of help. Armin Cimarelli does a lot of the events. Diane Muratore uh, was the in-house uh, kind of uh, travel agent, if you will, coordinator. And uh, I I really enjoyed the standing and the uh, that it had created for Golf Week. I enjoyed personally the recognition I got. But, um, you know, it... I can tell you this, uh, while I regret having given up some of that, uh, overall I have no qualms whatsoever. So you're sort of a mixed mind, but uh, positive and moving on. And I don't really miss it because I'm, I got tired of traveling. There's nothing more depressing than being stuck in an airport on a, Friday, on a Saturday night by yourself. Uh, and frankly, playing some of the courses we were playing after five days in a row, I, I don't really enjoy that kind of... I'm not a golf nut like that. There are, you know, there are people who, who need to play 36 holes a day, eight days in a row. I'm not one of them. I enjoy walking the golf course. I enjoy hanging out. I enjoy reading. I enjoy writing. And I needed time for that. So uh, overall, I really have no regrets. Um, it's right. kind of, uh, it was easy. It always seemed at Golf Week you had a lot of a latitude to explore subjects and to take on different assignments do you have that same uh, or even more latitude at, uh, with your role now? How has that changed in the type of things that you can approach or the types of ideas that you can explore? Uh, so far, I've, uh, whatever I suggest, I'm able to write. So, um, the, uh, you know, with any magazine or any publication, you have editors and you have space issues. And uh, the space issues became... Uh, more obvious to me. I, I used to write 1,500, 1,600-word columns. I was down to 800 words. It was a little more difficult yeah. to get stuff in print uh, because of the, uh, the nature of the magazine. And um, so, you know, now so far I've been able to suggest what I want and then go off and do it. So we'll see. You were an, an undergrad in the kind of the mid-70s when you, when you got your uh, bachelor's degree. What, what was the... I'm kind of switching gears now into your backstory, but and it's going to lead up to something, but what was that, what was the culture like then? It was just at the end of the Vietnam War or, you know, at the tail end and into that mid-70s where times were a lot different. A lot of the people who listen to this podcast are um, probably younger, so they don't maybe remember that, but what was it like? What are your memories from that period in your life? Well, marijuana was a lot cheaper, um, the, uh, <laughs> I'm told. Uh, I wouldn't know since uh, it's been a long time, but back then, we accessible. It was part of the meal plan. Uh, I was at State University of New York at Binghamton. I was actually on the concert committee my first year. So we'd have new riders of the Purple Sage. Uh, I remember assembling the uh, drum set awesome. for the Beach Boys. We had, and I booked the, the acts too, Chuck Berry and uh, wow. the Kinks. And um, we had some help in the enjoyment of those <laughs> concerts, uh, as everybody did. And that was the culture then. It's changed, and you grow up, and you move on, and... Uh, that's behind me, but, you know, that's what everybody was doing back then. So it was, it was recreational. It was fine. Uh, we were very involved in uh, protesting in uh, 1972, uh, for example. Uh, we shut down uh, the campus, uh, the protest of the mining of Hanoi and Haiphong Harbors in May of 72. 
whole group of us got arrested back then. And it was important work uh, or protest. And, you know, it was we thought it was important and it felt important. And, and that was part of the culture. So, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm active politically uh, in more formal ways. Uh, in those days, that's what we did. I was active in the McGovern yeah. campaign back mm-hmm. then. So uh, uh, I went, went out to Washington, to uh, Milwaukee in the 72 primary and spent two weeks in the office there uh, lobbed, uh, campaigning for McGovern and running the press office. Uh, literally running the uh, the Xerox machine. I don't know if you've ever ran off uh, thirty thousand copies by Not yourself, that much. but it's <laughs> very demanding on the uh, when you're sitting there turning them out one by one. But that's that's what we did in those days. Um, I can't say it was a more mobilized or you know era because it was specific to the university setting that we were in. Parts of the country were quieter. I think a lot of it is misrepresented. I don't think it was a you know all sorts of campus turmoil everywhere, but it was a lot of activism activism at Binghamton, and that was one of the attractions of the place. So, But it, we got a great education, too. I went on to get a Ph.D. in political science, and during graduate school, I was caddying on the PGA Tour. So I managed back then even to combine uh, the things I loved, which were uh, academic enterprise as well as golf uh, at the highest level. Uh, certainly not playing, but caddying. So that's the closest I ever got to great golf. Which was well, pretty close. Yeah, definitely. Like watching some guys standing three feet away from you hitting professional golf shots. Uh, do you have a favorite memory from the caddy years? There's a different culture back then, too. I, you know, I think, I don't know that uh, the rank and file PGA player had a, a, a paid caddy that traveled with him week to week. That's why you had jobs, right? Well, uh, the rank and file, first of all, you were playing total tournaments for $200,000. That's now tied for, three way tied for sixth place. It's what the total purse was for an entire field back then. So, you know, I used to travel with Mike Cowan. He now caddies for... Um, uh, Furyk. Jim Furyk. And, and, and uh, back then, we were travel around in a, in a van, and we had this crazy schedule. You drove each week, and there were three, four uh, in, in a hotel room, two on the floor. You took turns. Uh, we used to have to hustle and, and work the pro-ams on Wednesday to make extra money. I was caddying for, uh, oh, I was, back then, I, my first job was Dick Ryan, uh, who was, uh, 1976, I got, I think, $20 a day and 3%. I graduated, uh, next year I had Lon Hinkle, I was making about 150 a week and 5%. I had Don Pooley, Danny Edwards, uh, I moved up, I was Bernhard Langer's first tour really? caddy in the United States in 81, 82, briefly. That was $200 and 3% a week. Uh, so it was a different world. Uh, I think we uh, it was more vagabond. Uh, it was an itinerant. You had a much more diverse group. I think now you have much more you know polished, professional, fine golfers who are part of the the uh, the, the entourage. Uh, back then, it, we hung out with each other and um, took the occasional shower and uh, got a ride out of town, hitchhiked, uh, or um, well, we drove somebody's car. I used to drive Mike McCullough's car and, uh, around in '79 and. Uh, then uh, you get a ride to the next town. So and then you stay three, four in a Motel Six and uh, McDonald's, and um, you know, not the best diet and not the best lifestyle. But um, you moved on. I met a lot of great people that way, and I'm I'm really grateful. It was a fabulous experience. I caddied in six U.S. Opens. Uh, my favorite caddy experience was certainly Bernhard Langer at the '81 World Series in Akron. I picked him up uh, in advance. I I was fluent in German, which helped, and I could caddy in meters. Yeah. So um, I arranged it through his agents at uh, IMG, and 
uh, it was fabulous. He was t- it was his 24th birthday that week at the World Series, and uh, he was tied for the lead on Sunday after eagling the second hole. And I was just about crapping in my pants. I was so nervous, but I held it together. He didn't. He bogeyed four of the last six holes, finished tied for sixth, won $14,500. And I think I made just under 700 bucks for the week, which was yeah, a lot a of money. That's a good pull, right. <laughs> you remember a lot of those things. The best moment I ever experienced as a caddy, I had Langer at the 82 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. He was in the throes of his second bout with the yips. Couldn't make a putt inside 10 Couldn't I didn't know what was going to happen inside 10 feet. Nobody had an idea. We were paired with uh, Bobby Clampett and Ben Crenshaw. And by about the 13th hole on Thursday, we would all turn away, Not even couldn't even watch, because inside 10 feet, you didn't know what was going to happen. Anyway, Langer missed the cut. I arranged to spend the weekend walking around with Herbert Warren Wynn, the great golf writer. Mm, wow, who was my mentor. Yeah. And uh, we were standing there. We spent. I walked the entire final round with Herb, and uh, we were standing right in front of the bunker by the 17th grain with Watson when he chipped in. And uh, that was pretty exciting. That roar and the uh, then coming up 18, and I think Watson birdied 18 too. He sank about a 20-footer. And uh, that was pretty exciting. So walking that final round with Herb when watching, uh, we watched every shot that Watson hit on the back nine. We joined him on 11 and walked in from there. Uh, that was great. Were you, uh, so, were you like a Watson guy or a Nicholas guy? Oh, uh, I was, uh, yeah, Watson, I'm sure. I was never, never one to cheer for runners. Uh, I was like, but I guess, you know what? I think all I wanted was an exciting event. I think that's what I really wanted then. Uh, and one other memory I had that really uh, was very powerful. Earlier, back in 77, I was traveling around the country with Mike Cow, and he had a big blue Chevy van, which we would get in and <laughs> drive. We drove from uh, Kemper in Charlotte to Memphis. And then on to Tulsa, and then on to the, and I'm, I was caddying for, at, at Memphis, uh, the, I think it was the second day. Um, I think it was the second day. We uh, we went out early, and um, I was caddying for, um, okay, Jim Gentile, Jimmy Gentile, and uh, we watched Guy Burgers going nuts with these scores on the board, and we finished early, and I went out and watched the last three holes of him shooting a 59. Uh, we, I think he birdied. The, he he played the. He started on the back nine, and he birdied. He had his old gritty caddy Lee Lynch, and I used one ball the whole round. An old beat up by the end of the round <laughs> title. Anyway, he birdied seven, part eight, and then sank about a twelve footer on nine. I'm standing right there watching him shoot that fifty end of the fifty nine. That was really cool. You're like a Forrest Gump figure in golf. There for all these like incredible moments in the PGA Tour history and beyond. Uh, well, some of them. <laughs> yeah. So you you have a degree, a master's and a, a doctorate in political science. And some of the things that you study are are, are pretty um, specifically non-golf. They're they're really non not the type of things uh, that most you know come up in casual conversation. They're pretty advanced topics. But do you do you see a a, a carryover or a crossover of what what you how your brain thinks? As a as a doctor in political science versus how you are as a as a media personality and a golf writer, is there something? This political science, can you apply that to analyzing golf? I always get asked this question, uh, and uh, so the short answer is, uh, I had a very serious academic career. 
Um, I was in a U.S. defense policy. I wrote a book on U.S. nuclear strategy with NATO. Spent a year and a half with uh, in Germany as a researcher. Um, I wrote a book with Cambridge University Press, which is a major academic. I had articles, lectured all over on war colleges. And so I had a very good familiarity with the library. I knew how to do serious work. And I also used to put things in a, in a larger context. So when I was always interested in golf, I was always interested in land, in culture, in recreation, and who was playing uh, issues of uh, in- income distribution, racism, uh, gender equity, so I always had that as part of how I thought about golf. Um, and, you know, maybe I was compensating for the fact that I was a lousy golfer. But uh, it was also my way of understanding the evolution of the game as a, as a really important social and cultural practice. So that's how I approached it from an academic. Uh, I, I was very well versed in political theory and political economy, uh, you know, income distribution issues and um, labor patterns and so on demographics. So I always had that as part of what I was writing about in golf. And uh, I'm very grateful to Golf Week for they gave me the uh, the latitude to explore that in terms of some of the language. I, I would always have, you know, one big word. I would sneak in uh, some analysis by Max Weber. I wrote an article once about the United States Golf Association in which they talk about their evolution from uh, charismatic to uh, legal to um, bureaucratic which was an exact adaptation of Max Weber's sociology. I would sneak that kind of stuff in, or my, my study of uh, landscape architecture and, and Frederick Law Olmsted, for example, and hum, Humphrey Repton. And, um, so, and I had references to the history of architecture in there. So I, I was lucky that I had a platform that I could explore that, and they cut me a lot of slack. I was always grateful for that. Um, but I don't know. My mind just works uh, the way it works. Uh, everybody's mind is weird. I, I have a lot of literary references. I used to have a lot of TV references from the 60s. I think I once described a, uh, a golf course in northern Michigan as a cross between uh, Fred Flintstone and uh, the Acid Queen. So, <laughs> I will see. You do have to be of a certain age to pick up on those references. I've... Well, I, I had to give them up because yeah. I don't watch much TV anymore. So, no, uh, I... For a while. The yeah. cultural references as you get older sort of get locked in time. It's hard to pick up new ones. My kids don't even know who Fred Flintstone is. It's shocking. <laughs> I know, and they've never listened to the the rock opera Tommy either. So, well, uh, may, they might they might get around to that at some point when when they're up in Binghampton uh, doing their own protests. We can slip that into their into their repertoire. <laughs> but I always uh, very freewheeling in terms of my references to um, movies. Uh, you know, I would talk about uh, I would. Use the talk about vertigo, for example. I always had Hitchcock references in there mm-hmm. um, to a to a, a golf course when it threw me off or it made me dizzy or something or uh, terrified um, <laughs> in terms of the uncertainty. I remember feeling that way with the played a dope course out in Palm Springs, uh, Stone Eagle, mm-hmm. and I was completely disoriented. I had vertigo the whole way, which I never have. But uh, if I just use that as a reference. Anyway, was that a good, was mind. that a good feeling, or had, had experienced that on a golf course? Is that a compliment? <laughs> no, it was not. Uh, I, I I thought it was a kind of a mess, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was just uh, it was the openness in, a, in an elevated, exposed site. I had uh-huh. no orientation whatsoever. Right. Yeah. I didn't mean it as a compliment. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I read a few years ago, Wide Open Fairways, your most recent book, and the one of the ending chapters on 
fairy point. I was kind of going through that again. And it was obvious that one of the things you'd like to do is to get into the sort of the financial aspect of building a golf course and how messed up the the city, the park system was and how they financed and, and built that course. So uh, it was, you know, it was a little bit of a, a gateway in, into your mind because I think, you know, that kind of thing for me personally as a writer, you know, I would, I'd be very bad at trying to cover the the budgetary and the inside political game kind of thing. Uh, but but you uh, covered it very well. But, uh, if your green fee is $100 and you're doing 30,000 rounds, you've just raised $3 million. So if you've spent $180 million doing the golf course, you're chasing a lot of empty debt that you'll never cover. So you just kind of figure it out that, that way. <laughs> I've always believed in golf as not just a sport, but as a business. Uh, and uh, I've always approached it from... Um, it uh, has to pay for itself, and uh, it was clear to me that it was overbuilding and was uh, overextended in the 90s, and I wasn't afraid to say that, precisely because I could see that they were promising more than they could deliver in the industry. So, That's, some, that's a topic I was hoping to get to. You know, since you were there, you were writing starting in the late 80s, really, and, in, and all through the 90s. Why weren't more publications, why wasn't more media paying more attention to how unsustainable the golf model was getting? Because they were driven by supply-side pressures from the advertisers. Uh, you know, the demand simply comes from golfers, but they don't take ads out, and they don't run the golf shows and the PGA shows. And so the pressure uh, on publications is to be a little bit careful. They don't like a lot of controversy. They don't like to annoy uh, manufacturers. Um, and there's a tremendous uh, industrial incentive momentum toward building more, whether it's selling more drivers and golf balls or selling more fertilizer and more construction. So the drive is always from a side that isn't accountable for paying for the structure once it exists. And so there's a real dynamic that has to be resisted. And I was just pointing that out. I think the the incentive all the time was to create more uh, and then to dump the operation on owners or residents or municipalities who couldn't keep paying the bills because they had overextended and the golf course uh, wasn't able to generate enough revenue to cover operating expenses. So uh, those pressures are, I don't mean, it's not like the the companies are calling up the editors and yelling at them. A lot of it is self-censorship as well. I think uh, editors and writers tend to be a little bit uh, gun-shy about uh, annoying people. Um, There's always a presumption in the media that you don't want to be too negative. I had to be careful about that, too. I would I would never write three negative reviews in a row. I'd always throw a, a positive one in there. Um, I wouldn't change the review. I would just choose a different golf course to write about. But I think that generally the, the golf industry is very amicable. It's very uh, sociable and friendly, and people don't like the folks who are raising a ruckus. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, suppression of dissent and suppression of uh, critical voices. I know there are a number of industry analysts who were very, very critical of the overexpansion and pointed this out, and they, they weren't getting contracts with the National Golf Foundation or other organizations, not to point them out, but uh, it became hard to, to sort of be one of the guys at the table. So it's a very friendly, supportive group, and everybody means well. They love the game, uh, but from a business model, I think sometimes a more sober analysis is really helpful. So I, I think just more diversity actually w- was something that was important. Um, that was a time that 
that more dissent was needed? Uh, I mean, it seems so clear in, in retrospect to look back on it. I'm wondering how clear it was at the time. And, you know, and you mentioned, you know, you kind of touched on why there weren't more dissenting voice. The golf media industry is not set up to, for criticism, really. It's it's a back padding, uh, feel good kind of club. But did you have conversations with other people behind the scenes who were, you know, who were also uh, aware of how disastrous this this building a golf course a day model was? Oh, sure. All the time. Yeah. We uh, kind of uh, figured out strategy about that and how to gain a foothold and um, developed all sorts of tools for um, saying it politely. And uh, But, you know, that was most commonly uh, articulated behind the scenes with consulting, which is I got involved with uh, private clubs and started to talk to them behind the scenes. So, if you can't do it publicly, but there were a lot of great analysts who were still around who uh, figured out a way to kind of get the message across. Uh, uh, you might not be able to do it easily in an open public forum. You could say it, but you wouldn't. Uh, very often, you wouldn't be invited back. You wouldn't come back to the big, you know, industry circles and forums that they forums that they had. But you'd get your message across privately, and lots of phone calls behind the scenes and trying to figure out stuff. Um, and um, yeah, the other thing is just. After a while, the industry just kind of caught up with itself and started getting all those course closings in the mid-2000s. Uh, and that was, by then, it was very clear what had happened. So um, you sort of learn to pick and choose. Um, and I, I think I worked really, really hard at trying to modulate a voice and uh, to be effective without being shrill. Uh, that was always a bit of a... A battle, and I, again, I have to say, Golf Week was very supportive of that. And there were times I got my head bit off. I remember I, I used to run a magazine called Superintendent News. Uh, right. Started it back in '99, mm-hmm. and early on, I wrote a, a couple of editorials about the absurdity of overseeding, and argued that it was a complete waste of resources, that it was uh, too much water being wasted, that a, a dormant Bermuda golf course was a great surface as long as you walked on it. Uh, it wouldn't have, uh, it wasn't very traffic tolerant, and it didn't absorb a lot of water, but uh, in dry climates, it was fine. And I basically said, golf courses should stop overseeding. Well, the the seed industry pulled $60,000 worth of ads out, and uh, I had to kind of go around and talk to them about it and uh, pretend that I was making amends, and um, that was, you know, a bit of a blow to the magazine. But they supported me in that, and, um, you know, so you say what you can when you can say. You try to be strategic about it. You don't want to be shrill and screaming all the time. From my perspective, looking back, and I got into the golf media business around 2000, but it doesn't, it's never seemed to me outside of you and like maybe Tom Doak's confidential guides that there's really ever been a, a type of true golf course criticism from the media like you'd see in the restaurant industry or the movie business. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the, uh, I wrote about that, and I observed it, I, oh, and I could see from my academic training. Uh, I used to read a lot of art criticism, too. Uh, so uh, it's a great question, and I figured out early on that, there, first of all, there was no great tradition. Uh, how would you develop it? Well, you've you got to have some independence. Uh, you know, restaurant critics pay for their meals, and they try to go incognito. Uh, and one of the things I noticed is the culture of golf writing was largely determined by the relationship that tour writers had with the players, which is essentially they were part of the show. And so you had a very supportive uh, culture where they were enabling each other. 
And that's not a great model for honest, objective judgment and criticism. So, you know, when you're, when you're getting free golf, you try to be a good host. Most people try to be. I was a little less so. Uh, and uh, I kind of made it clear that if I was going to go someplace, I'd be happy to go and play. And I usually got comp, uh, but don't expect, you know, uh, fawning praise. And in fact, I think what I tried to do in every review I wrote, even when I thought it was great, was to always have some kind of element of suggestion or improvement or, you know, could be do could do better. And I did that largely because readers are not stupid. Readers are smart. They can figure it out. If you just write fawning stuff, uh, you lose all credibility. And the magazine loses credibility. And I, I, I was able to convince Golf Week of that at the time. that, uh, And they understood that. That credibility was really important. And so... If you were writing bad critical reviews, it also meant that the, the favorable ones were honest, and so readers could trust those better. So I, I think I saw that early on, that you could develop a, a following and credibility and attention uh, if you were more uh, discerning. So, uh, you know, I, there were a lot of places I just thought were terrible and basically said it, and still think that and still say it. <laughs> yeah, it just it's such a, a rare thing to to see in print or even online from a quote-unquote professional writer you know nowadays there's a lot of there's blogs everywhere and opinions and on twitter but it it, it just it's never really existed uh i guess in golf week with your 100 best ratings that's a that is a form of criticism you know uh, criticism by omission or seeing where golf courses are are slotted in versus where the club perceives that they should be that is a form of that's always been a form of of public you know ranking and criticism in a way although it's not you know def, it's not articulated precisely where why each course is where it is but how much how much blowback have you gotten over the years over those rankings um, the funny thing is I, I realized this right off the bat um, that if you rated somebody really well they almost never thanked you whereas if you slam them or criticize them or left them out, you heard it uh, from them pretty intensely. So uh, so I got that a lot. Uh, I would get a lot of uh, calls and uh, complaints from architects whose work were left out or I had said something or mainly places thought they needed, they should have been highly, more highly ranked. How come I'm not, you know, that kind of thing. And so you, you get an earful for that. I think that... Uh, and I, I got to give Tom Doak a lot of credit for this. Uh, he was the one who uh, just unabashedly went in and said, "This is good. This is great. This is terrible. Here's why." And uh, that, that was such a, a refreshing change. Uh, even in the whole history of golf course architecture, Herb Warren, Herbert Warren Wynn never said that a golf course was awful. He might very indirectly, in his genteel kind of a scholarly way, said something that you could interpret as a little bit dismissive, but uh, he was very, very soft, as was uh, um, Bernard Darwin, for example, or Pat Ward-Thomas. So there was a whole tradition of that that I, I think people were just so polite and, and thoughtful. And to me, uh, I, I just came as an outsider, and I thought I could probably say this a little more directly. I, I never quite said it as directly as Tom Doak did in his early versions of The Confidential Guide. Uh, even he's gotten a little more tactful over the years. He has, yeah. But, uh, even yeah. The, even on the the reissue of some of those, he's uh, re rephrased some of his criticisms from the same golf course. 
I don't know if you edit this thing, but uh, he had a review once of a golf course in Kansas, and early, he basically says this is what happens when you have an, an owner who has shit for brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was right. I never saw the place. I, that's one of the things I... Uh, but I, I really appreciated that. Uh, I don't know if... Yeah, that honesty. Uh, it got him in a lot of trouble, but, you know, he's done pretty well for it, for all the trouble he's running. I agree. So, it doesn't seem to have hurt him too much. Uh, I had I had Keith Cutton on last week, and one of the things he mentioned that kind of I, I, maybe I didn't connect the dot connect the dots or realize was you know back in the early part of the 19th century when uh, kind of a, a heyday for for golf magazines, um, and a lot of the magazines were edited by architects or or players. And he mentioned that during this period in time, there was much more peer review. They would get around and discuss ideas and what was good architecture and what was bad architecture. And they had skin in the game because often they were the architect in question or it was their course or something that they'd been involved in. Do you get a sense that there's amongst architects these days, there's any kind of meaningful peer review and discussion? Uh, it, it seems to me everybody's operating in, a, in, in, independent, in independent circles. And there's not a whole lot of there's actually professional ethics reasons for it, which is that the membership of the American Society of Golf Course Architects has a stipulation that they don't want you commenting publicly on the... I may have rephrased this, uh, got it slightly wrong, but it's some version of uh, professional ethics require you to uh, refrain from commenting on the work of other architects. Uh, or not looking at it critically. There's a, there's a kind of politeness clause in there. Uh, and um, so they become much... Now, they talk among themselves all the time, but they don't go public with it, and uh, that, that's out of mutual respect and professionalism, I guess. So is you're, that, you're right. There was is that earth, healthy, though? All the architects that, you know, that you're talking about, Tillinghast wrote extensively, uh, Walter Travis and Devereux Emmett, to some extent. Uh, certainly, McKenzie uh, was very dismissive of certain courses. He'd do it a little obliquely. Uh, uh, wouldn't name the guy, but it was obvious what of course, he was talking about. Um, but there was much more of that discussion, and uh, you're right, much more extensive commentary. Um, Do you think it would be healthier in this climate if there was more of an open dialogue? Well, you know, it's hard to know because uh, it's hard to separate that from professional jealousy or competitiveness. So the motives in a, in a culture like ours today would be a little more suspect. Um, one got the sense that a lot of those architects were doing it out of love and uh, passion rather than uh, competitive uh, business instincts. So I think it'd be more difficult these days. Um, you don't think it's possible I for have, people to uh, say, talk, about, talk out of a position of love these days? Is that too hard? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, some architects are, are look forward to it. Most of them are a bit sensitive. But one of the things I love about Pete Dye, for example, is he couldn't care less what you said about him in anything. Uh, he was great about it. Uh, there were others who uh, were much more sensitive, and uh, I heard from them over the years. So, Going uh, back to I the... Do, go, I'm sorry, public, go ahead. I, public, and one of the things I look forward to with Golf Channel and Golf Advisors, I think the public is much more accustomed to more honest and, uh, and uh, sincere judgments about things. I think they look at it a little more, um, what's the word, realistically than was the case 20, 30 years ago. And, um, you know, because when you have public golfers, especially who are spending money and they want to make choices, and uh, uh, they can tell the difference between gushy pros and uh, uh, an honest assessment. So um, I'm, uh, I look forward to that. 
That's interesting. So you're saying the you you have more faith in in the reader's ability to you know winnow through through the uh, the nonsense and and get to the core of the truth. Is that is that the result? I guess let me just ask this: how how much influence does the media have these days on it, the readership? Because it seems like in the past, when you you know the media, not not necessarily you or Golf Week, but the other forms of mass media and golf would get bombarded with uh, literature and, and PR and press releases and images, and that did have an influence on what they put in the magazine, and then that carried over into the public's perception of what was good golf and where they should play. But in 2018, how much power does the media have in swaying or influence? Uh, it's a great question. Here's the way I'd answer it. When I started with uh, writing for a lot of outlets in the mid-late 80s, we were print dominated and was able to set the tone uh, now, uh, because of uh, social media websites, whether it's um, golfclubatlas.com or Golf Advisor and, the, and the Twitter generally uh, and Facebook, I think it's much harder to take a leadership role. And so there's, uh, you're working in a much more uh, co- complex current where uh, more critical judgments are out there. And so if you come off as gushy, it looks... Um, somewhat disingenuous. Uh, and now that's not with all r- 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 golfers. It's, it's probably 5 to 10% of them. But the people who are leading these buddy trips, for example, the ones who are architecture gurus, they're leading, or in many ways, setting the tone. And so that's the conversation you have to have. Um, and you're mindful of that in a way that was not the case 20, 30 years ago. That's changed a lot. So I think social media has actually made uh, the golf media more accountable and more uh, demanding of diversity and uh, some judgment and criticism you know uh, we because of instagram and and so on we have a better idea of what some of these golfers are doing in their spare time rather than just practicing and being uh, you know wonderful athletes and role models so that has a big change yeah it's I mean, social media and i only recently began to participate in social media but it seems like it's it's just pulled the pants down on print media and the old forms of media you know with with like you said, Twitter, Instagram, the ability to, of of guys to go out with drone cameras and fly over golf course and get amazing shots. Uh, you know, there's there's no longer this culture where you're getting your information from these arbiters who are on high and who seem to like have access to all the information. They're disseminating it down the chain to the reader. Now you you get it from all sides, and it doesn't matter if the person is a professional or they're paid or they're a hobbyist. It's the, the, it's an overwhelming amount of information that the consumer has. And I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what that means. Is that, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. Is it healthy? Uh, it, 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 you can really get lost in all that. Well, you have to be selective. Uh, um, I mean, I, I got off Facebook a year, I think a year ago, I shut it off completely. Uh, I was wasting too much time. And I'm, I never worry about what I don't see or what I miss. So that, that helps. Uh, and I have to say also in terms of television, it was, I'm cutting off a lot more. I just find it uh, very disturbing. So I just try to control my input. But you're right. I mean, and, and a lot of it is great material. That's the other thing. Just like there's all this great TV on, uh, on Netflix, and everyone tells me all these great shows I should be watching, which I, I miss. Uh, and so you have to just be disciplined and selective about it. Otherwise, you spend all your time tracking through and linking. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading right now, I'm writing an article uh, for Golf Advisor about loop golf courses, uh, you know, 
forest dunes and so on, and Sylvia's Valley Ranch. And uh, so I, once you start looking at that, I mean, someone sent me, the historian from the RNA just sent me a very long article on the history of changes at St. Andrews in the uh, late 19th century. It's a fascinating article, and i got to read it. So now there's that. And then I, I look up some golf club atlas threads on uh, on loop golf courses and meticulous reviews, and the resource base is endless. So you, at some point you just have to sort of, as we used to say, uh, sometimes you have to stop researching and start writing. Yeah. Going back to that last chapter on Trump Ferry Point and wide open fairways, you wrote that probably in like maybe 2012 or so, and I was it was a pretty amazing how uh, prescient you were on Donald Trump. I mean, you're from that area, so you're more familiar with him and his backstory than maybe most people. But you didn't, you know, you were not giving him any kind of the benefit of a doubt. You weren't buying any of that bullshit. So, and but you you've known him a little bit over the years and interacted with him. Has, has he? Cha- how much? How much has he changed? I mean, how much? How surprised are you? To veer this into a little political talk, but how surprised are you to see what you what you're seeing now from him in that office versus the interactions you've had with him in the past? I mean, let me let me uh, go back. Uh, I, my interactions with him started over the ratings we were doing. I on uh, on a non I certainly didn't consult with him or do anything uh, or work with him uh, directly. Uh, in any way, but I, he asked me when I was going over to Scotland what I thought of the, the project. I told him I stayed over there at his house with my wife, and uh, I went over for the opening. And I was very frank the whole time. I said it was not; it was too severe. It wasn't going to work. Uh, it was cold sight. He had a lot of horror in the morning, afternoon shade with the Grampian Mountains, all this stuff. He wasn't listening to anything. Same thing with kind of Doral. So I could see that uh, he just, just from a golf standpoint now. Just strictly from a golf standpoint, I, I, I respected his attention to detail. I completely disagreed with everything he had in terms of his judgment and taste and, and, and sort of aesthetic, if you will. And I saw that he was not listening. I also saw that he was intent on uh, making sure that the contractors he had would not fully get paid. He'd be very critical of them at every moment. But at the same time, uh, there was an incredible attention to detail, the quality of material, the color tone, uh, and he'd have these long discussions with uh, Ivanka on the airplane going down there about what they were going to do for the bathrooms and the uh, the, the Doral and go around and look at chandeliers. So uh, there was an odd thing going on here, uh, which was that he was incredibly invested emotionally, cared a lot, uh, but didn't care at all what anyone else thought or said. So that was clear for me from the golf. And I always admired Gil Hans and his associate, um, uh, Wa- Jim Wagner. Jim Wag- um, I think it's Jim Wagner, right? Yeah, Jim Wagner. Yeah. Um, for their ability to handle him. Uh, <laughs> I got into trouble because I wrote a, a, a fairly favorable review of Doral, Blue Monster, that had one critical comment in there, and he went ballistic. It went off on me, and uh, conference calls and lawyers and all sorts of threats and everything. So from that standpoint, and I spent quite a bit of time in his office, walking around with him, uh, went over to the opening, but I could see that there was something really weird in his attitude toward women, and his attitude toward workers, his attitude toward his staff, uh, his intolerance of any dissent, that kind of stuff. So I just backed off at that point and uh, stayed away. So everything else that's happened, I'm surprised that he got this far, and his personality is, you know, showing. So um, I'd rather leave it at that. I, I understand.
just to follow up one one last thing on the on the media issue that we've been talking about, you mentioned uh, your fondness for Herb Wind earlier. I wanted to ask you, who working today in the media do you most admire or think does the best job or of making sense out of what's happening in golf? Well, I, my favorite uh, boy. Uh, you have to come back with me at that one. Um, I, I, I really, that's a good question. I have to think about that. I, I can think of general sources. Huh. <laughs> um, the guy who does fried egg is really good. Andy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Shout out to Andy Johnson. Andy Johnson's very good. He, what I like about him is he's both concise, short, and covers some interesting back topics. Um, I always find him interesting. Uh-huh. Um, I'll have to think about that one. Okay. We can come back. If you think of somebody, go ahead and pop it off. Um, yeah. What about you? Do you feel like over the course of your career you've had a, an influence in the direction of golf course design or design trends? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, lately, I've been, and, and based on your comments, and I've been hearing a lot, I, um, I always knew that I was trying to articulate a, a position that was both dogmatic and informed. I, I, I always distinguish myself from Ron Witten uh, at Golf Digest. Who I always, uh, tremendous respect for him. He's very knowledgeable. He's incredibly uh, good about details. I never thought he was very good at getting a point across that uh, helped educate golfers about what their experience was like and helping them make judgments about good and bad. And I think he would agree with me that wasn't his job. He he always saw himself as uh, an informer, and he was great. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of his background as a prosecuting attorney. He doesn't take positions. He just defends uh, the facts. Uh, but I always sort of modeled myself as someone who was going to be an educator, uh, because I am one, or I was one for a long time. So I'm very proud um, of having taken positions on golf course restoration, on trees, on low-budget golf courses, on minimalist design, on uh, scruffy-edged setups, um, uh, not worrying about championship golf, but worrying about how golf was played from an everyday pers- perspective. And I, and I was very, uh, I think I've been consistent on that over the last 30, 40, 30 years about arguing for that. So I know personally I I worked really hard at articulating that position. It's impossible. I don't know what, if any, influence I've had, but I hear anecdotally that, uh, you know, and I go around, people, oh, I've been reading you for years, and that that really means a lot to me. It means that that, uh, they they kept coming back, and uh, that's that's really cool. that, that's a lot more interesting than uh, someone who responds to one or two articles or something. It means that, uh, you know, I, I, I can tell from the response I got from the Donald Ross book in, in particular, which did pretty well, it sold uh, 13,000 copies, I think, for an $85 book, uh, that um, people, there are, there are some people out there who take this stuff seriously. So, uh, you know, of all the golf, I always thought architecture was about 5% of the golfing public. And if I can reach that, that's really cool. So I'm I'm gratified mm-hmm. if that response has been there, and I'm getting the feeling uh, so lately that that's been the case. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that you've been a major voice in slowly convincing segments of the golf audience that architecture matters, 
and also in convincing them also that there are certain types of golf courses that we should pay closer attention to. Uh, it seems, and it seems like the tide over the last several years has has swung. There seems to be a bigger audience than ever now for the type of excellent golf courses that we've seen built since you know 2000, since the early 2000s. I know many people have kind of turned this the second golden age of architecture. And I posited to Ian Andrew a few weeks ago that there's no doubt that this is an amazing time for golf course design at the highest levels. But I wonder if we should term this period more neoclassical rather than another golden age, because a golden age signifies development, creation, a flow of creativity and new ideas, a flourishing of, of new thoughts. At least that's how I interpret it, where this era is really more of reminding people of what was great, you know, in the 19 teens and 20s and expressing that on new landforms rather than architects coming up with, you know, advancing architecture into a new place. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I've seen some of the stuff in France, which to me looks like what they're trying to advance. And it's, uh, you know, they've got, they've got golf courses that look like Vauban's fortresses from the 16th, 17th century. So if that's advancing along with Desmond Muirhead, God help us. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what I would say there is uh, that uh, I think the really important link that's been made with the so-called second golden age, right, kind of like your term neoclassical, it's actually the relationship between design and construction. And what's fascinating is all the really good work is about the field work, uh, the design build in the field. Uh, and that's where Pete Dye was really innovative. And all of the guys, many of the guys who are, many of the people who are leading this, you know, phase that we're in, came out of Pete Dye's school. Uh, Tom Doak in particular comes right to mind. Bill Corp, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, um, and Rod Whitman. And, uh, what it, it's about building something that looks like what you have in your head. I think the really disastrous phase in golf course architecture was ushered in when people did detailed plans and handed off to a contractor, and then they came back once every two weeks or once a week to check on it and make sure that everything was built as, as drawn. And I've had architects who have told me that they're very proud that they never had any change orders because they built exactly what they drew. And my answer is, yeah, it looks that way. It looks like kind of a Tupperware. And uh, you've got all these contractors out here who they're very good, they're very competent, but uh, a lot of them are building the last golf course they built rather than yours. And so the attention to detail and the fact that these designers have their own shaping crew, you know, uh, caveman construction with Gil Hans, for example, or Doak's crew of shapers, or uh, Ben and Bills, who have gone off to do some really good work on their own, and guys like uh, Kyle Franz, uh, that's really innovative because they're, they're actually creating, and they're doing it not just on new courses, but almost, I would say, mainly on older courses, the restoration. So there's a kind of rule of thumb I think is really helpful in architecture, which is that the feature work and the complexity and the beauty of it is basically uh, disproportional to the size of the equipment you're using. And if you're using a big bulldozer, you're not going to get it right. If you're using a very small machine or a backhoe or a shovel, or a horse and oxen, or a, a, a trencher, not a trencher, a, a, a small backhoe, a skid steer, then you can get it right. So that is really the big innovation, I think, and that's been missed but for the most part by the 
golfing public, and actually by most writers. The focus is not on design, it's on construction in the field. And I think that one of the things that happened is that the same golf writers who were enthralled to the tour players, whether it was Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, or, or Tiger Woods, they kind of latched on to name designers like Tom Fazio and Reese Jones and, and Nicholas and, and Pete Dye. And they, and, you know, they, they talk about them in terms as if they're sort of auteurs creating a movie by themselves. And they forget about the cinematographer and the, and the, and, and the key grip and the, uh, the staffers and the, and the drivers and the set designers. So uh, that attention to me is really what's transformed modern architecture into that neoclassical mode that you're talking about. Yeah, it's, I, I like the way you, you put that, is that the, it's talent. You know, the talent is not in design, it's in, it's in the construction. But I do but wonder... Fine, but it's got to have some latitude to it. Um, it's got to have a little bit of flex. You know, you, you need your drawings in order to get a budget, and you need to know what the volumes are. But you can do that off of a AutoCAD and just do a standard uh, uh, volumetric analysis, but still you're doing the work in the field. And that's really where the creativity and the and the finish and the and the and, and, the, and the frumpiness and the cr- the crustiness of the features really come through, as opposed to that finished, polished, sort of smooth uh, kind of highway finish that you saw with a lot of D6s and D5s that were building golf courses in the 60s and 70s. Absolutely. So, what does the future look like? I know that a lot of the guys, you know, you're thinking of Kyle Franz, uh, Keith Reb, Kai Golby, uh, oh, you know, I, other King guys, Collins, Keith Cutton, who I talked uh, to. Oh, for example, yeah. And then there, there are architects who can build for shapers. You know, Andy Staples does that, for example. Matt Dusenberry, I've worked with them. Um, Ian Andrew can shape himself. But uh, so it's 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 not just you know uh, but it, uh, Jay Blasey as well. It's about designing for the complexity of what's going to happen in the field, um, as opposed to designing in order to facilitate a a bid contract for a municipality where you go to an RFP and trying to get the job. And that's a whole other craft um, that we're seeing. And I think where golf is going, where golf design, I hope, is going. That's what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, is to that more polished, uh, I'm sorry, more craftsman-like. We're back in the arts and crafts movement here. And, uh, and I think that kind of attention to detail is really what's going to make facilities distinct and give them a brand and give them some staying power in an increasingly competitive market. Golf is going to become more of a niche sport. It's not going to be the mass sport that a lot of people in the golf uh, 2020 and the NGF had hoped for, and I think they understand that. Um, Certainly the NGF does. Uh, And they understand that what's going to drive the success of a facility is its ability to be distinctive and unique and memorable and site-specific. And uh, that's going to require much more attention uh, on the restoration side to heritage and tradition, and uh, low-key maintenance and flexibility and setups and fescue areas and native around the outside, and uh, reduced uh, over-maintenance down the middle. And it's also going to require for new facilities, uh, obviously service and complexity and par-three courses and short game areas and ranges, it's going to require a lot more attention to a variety of services short of a a full 18-hole experience. Uh, that's a lot to put on the plate, but I think that's what's going to happen. And the golf course is going to have to be interesting and memorable rather than just kind of functional. Uh, what I'm seeing especially, and I'll just stop here, is that the uh, the emphasis on golf courses now is not on 7,400 yards. It's on what it's like to play it from 6,200 yards and 5,200 yards. And there's a lot more attention paid to that than there was 20 years ago. People, I always like to say, 
The people who play the back tees don't pay the bills. And if you have any interest in return on investment and you look at the golf course as a business model, you'll stop worrying about the scorecard and the, as a billboard to sell the place, and you'll worry more about the revenue stream from the players who are actually out there trying to have fun. On the design side, have we explored everything that there is to explore? You mentioned some, some junk garbage you saw in France and, and hoping that that's not the future. I've only seen photos of them, I, I have to say. It was just kind of illustrative. and um, To use that as an example. Typically postmodern. Yes, yeah. But do you think, is there any, in your opinion, is there anything to explore on the design side? Construction, let's say, let's assume that's being taken care of and handcrafted and it looks authentic and artisan. But are there new territory to explore? Are there new territories? Uh, Ian Andrew also said, you know, he thought that maybe a, a slight narrowing might, it might be time to kind of go back and not get as wide as Mammoth Dunes. That maybe went too far. Or, or, or is everything that was discovered in the 1920s strategy-wise and design-wise and intellectually, is that, is that where it is? Is that as good as it gets? Well, look, structurally, that stuff didn't hold up very well. So uh, you're going to see a lot of new technologies in fabric and liners and polymer compounds and uh, uh, semi-permeable membranes in, in, in bunkers. Uh, you know, the one thing that no one talks about is that with all golf courses is they looked like hell back then. Uh, and they broke down real fast, and the walls of the bunkers deteriorated very fast. So that's all changed, and you've got a lot more stability to the structure. You've got better uh, drainage. and uh, uh, technology for building tees that are reasonably uh, endurable over the years without losing their shape or without getting deformed. So um, technologically and infrastructure, we've got a lot more possibilities. Um, that's to the advantage. It gives more options, and I, and I think you'll see a lot more uh, variety in, in construction techniques as a result. You know, one of the things you were seeing is a lot more attention to the preparation of, of uh, what's called foregreen or short grass areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, around the green. Uh, at uh, Blue Jack National, the Tiger Woods course in, outside Houston, they're maintaining a very tight surround all over and behind, and they're walk mowing, as a lot of people are, their last 15, 20 yards into the greens. So that kind of preparation, and, and, and um, there's a whole level that we haven't even touched upon about the relationship between the design, construction, and the maintenance of it. And that is also getting a lot more attention, and you've got a lot more smart, sophisticated uh, scientists who are uh, agronomists and superintendents who understand how to keep turf grass ter- tight and firm. Uh, I do think that golf courses have gotten a little too wide uh, uh, to the you know to the point where it almost doesn't matter where you hit it. So uh, you know that you could make it a case. The stream song stream song black has a little bit of that, has a lot of that actually. Um, and I, I think the other thing is. It's, it's the hard the part is it's hard to calibrate who you're designing for because the, the difference between good players and great players and average players is bigger than ever. So it's very hard to know who you're actually designing for. But um, you're probably going to see a little bit of a narrowing of the golf course. It just gets so expensive with irrigation just to set that up. So uh, and the other thing you're going to see is probably a lot simplified maintenance where the po- focus is going to be more on down the middle and letting the, the edges go scruffy and rough. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be a good thing. From a purely golf design business perspective, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? It's because it seems it's hard to imagine right now 
it's hard for me to imagine. It may not be for you. It's hard for me to see where the new jobs are going to come from. You know, there's a handful of developers who have the resources and the willingness to, to do great major things. But that those little municipal courses, those uh, smaller everyday courses that, that most people would like to play, it, it there don't seem to be that, any, that many in construction or on the boards right now. Well, uh, it's a completely separate issue whether uh, there are going to be jobs um, because golf courses are going to have to be run more efficiently anyway. So uh, maintenance crews are get, getting smaller because labor is so expensive. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I think that the industry needs to prepare, and I lecture on this, the superintendents, golf, golf industry is going to have to be prepared for a steady uh, sh- shrinkage. It's, gonna be, it's not going to get bigger. Uh, they're going to be more courses closed than open, and that's been the case for the last eight, nine years, and I'm sure that's going to continue simply because fewer people who are young are taking up the game. Uh, you've got some very vigorous uh, junior programs, but generally the population uh, appears to be, with particularly uh, the classes, for whatever reason, uh, they're not taking up golf to the same extent. I wish they would. I wish they had been... There were more caddies like myself at clubs to, to discover the game, but for, for whatever cultural reasons, and that's a separate discussion, I don't see that happening. I don't see that as a disaster, though. I see that as an opportunity uh, for the clubs. First of all, if you're going to grow the game, you've got to do it at your facility. Don't wait for the industry to do it for you. Uh, and uh, you're seeing a lot more facilities that are amenable to that in terms of diverse programming and short game areas and junior golf. Uh, those seem to work at a particular place, families especially. Uh, I'm optimistic about the ingenuity of uh, smart people to uh, render their facilities more efficient, to operate with fewer people, um, and to be a little more, uh, what's the word, um, business balanced and, uh, and meet operating costs. So, um, But I do think the industry is going to shrink, and I just don't think it's too hard a game uh, the infrastructure, the costs of learning it emotionally and financially are very high. The reward structures are very much delayed. It's very antithetical to contemporary culture, uh, and uh, the kind of discipline and learning and slow acquisition of skills uh, are not those sort of things that modern kids and their parents are um, fam- uh, comfortable with. So, uh, in that sense, uh, I think the golf industry, you know, has to be prepared. Uh, there are some uh, aspects of it that look a little more promising. I think you're going to see more people taking up um, top golf, for example. But I don't see that feeding the game. I see that as kind of an interesting entertainment diversion, which is fine. But uh, to me, it's a niche sport and it's a niche game, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And I think the industry got itself into trouble when it tried to make itself uh, you know, equal to uh, football, basketball, and baseball. It's, uh, or soccer. Yeah, um, it's, it's too bad this uh, neoclassical movement, what I'm calling it, it uh, didn't happen in 1990. I think we things could have been a lot different. All those golf courses that were being built would might look quite different, and there might be a whole different ethos behind the way we play golf, more walking, a, a, a different value on the types of shots you hit into golf courses and how the golf course reacts against shots. But it might be a little too late, too little too late. Yeah, you know, the, the other thing is I think the, the really interesting development is going to, you're asking me about where architecture is going. Uh, I think the real challenge for architects is going to be to build a facility that is 
simultaneously challenging and demanding for good players, while the same golf course is fun, interesting, and accessible and open uh, to mid-high handicappers. And I don't think that you can achieve that just by making everything wider. Um, I think you're going to have to build greens that have sides of them that are protected and opening up the front. Uh, I think the problem what I see with tour players is that they don't care about angles because they can fly it over anything and stop it. So you have to do you have to protect corners of greens here and there, but you don't have to have the whole green surrounded, and you can give mid high handicappers some place to get onto the green. The thing about a 20 handicapper is that they're very happy getting on the green. They don't care if they're 60 feet away. So if you give them, you might not want to put the flag there. But so I think the real challenge for architects is to make golf courses that are both flexible enough to be uh, that uh, difficult when they need to be set up and yet open and fun. Uh, for everyday play. Yeah. Let's talk uh, for a moment about restoration. That topic's come up in this uh, our dialogue a few times. Now, you do a lot of consulting, as you mentioned, uh, through the Donald Ross Society and on your own. Um, I know clubs that have had you come in. With Ross Society, I'm sorry. Excuse me? I have no connection to the Donald Ross Society. I mean, I have respect for them as uh, uh, folks who appreciate Ross, but I, I'm independent of them. Okay. I always have. Um, you are a noted authority on Donald Ross, amongst other things, um, and clubs uh, welcome you in to help um, them make decisions. When it comes to restoration, and you look at these architects, many who specialize in restoration, whether it's Ross, but there are a lot of people that Ross has a lot of golf, more golf courses than other architects, so there are more Ross experts, I guess. Um, do you see a difference in the quality or the, the way some of these restoration artists approached the job? Well, first of all, there are quite a number of people who, for marketing purposes, present themselves as Ross experts. And I'm always a little wary of people who uh, style themselves as this or that expert. I think uh, learning and being appreciative of a design style doesn't mean you need to or that you have to immerse yourself in one. In fact, I think uh, what I've seen from those people is that sometimes they end up becoming formulaic and what they're doing is you know there is no one Donald Ross style there was an early middle late phase his his work evolved um, and uh, I'm always a little worried about folks who present themselves as such so that's the first thing I'd say mm-hmm. um, second is that the quality of Ross's work or at least what we have well two things the, the quality of his work varied dramatically uh, depending on who built it, uh, the evidence based for the work sometimes doesn't exist. I'm working, uh, I've seen courses where you know you have to sort of make up what you're doing, so to speak, because you don't really have plans from the original and the aerials don't start till 30 years after the golf course opens. So what do you do there? Uh, and Ross, thank goodness, didn't have template holes like a, a Rainer or a McDonald. So uh, you have to... St- pretty carefully study uh, and look at aerials and photography and ground studies and you have to look at the evolution of his work and um, and then you also have to see what the site will bear um, and also unfortunately a lot of these courses got butchered in the 60s and 70s by guys coming in there and rerouting or trying to uh, in, in the search of a length they, they moved greens I, I have no problem with moving tees but I have a lot of problem with moving greens to gain length uh, so the, the, what you're dealing with is uneven to start with. And then there are budgetary concerns as well. So um, 
And also, I mean, I, I normally don't think it's very good to, to reproduce, to build new holes, but then I've seen, you know, and, Andy, um, Andrew Green at Inverness, he built three new holes on completely uh, untouched land at Inverness, and he used it to recapture a lot of what they had lost when the Fazios came in in the late 70s and hacked up uh, Inverness. So there's a case where I normally think what you try to do is restore in place. He, his view was he couldn't restore it in place. There wasn't enough margin for safety and, and access and distance. So he just kind of lifted the uh, the old abandoned holes and, and adapted versions of it anew. Uh, that's hard to do. He did a fabulous job. So I think that golf course is going to be a model for a different kind of restoration, which we have not seen. Most of the restoration has been back in place rather than I'll move it over here and kind of capture it again. Mm -hmm. So when you're consulting with clubs, do you make recommendations on, on who they might think about hiring to oversee or come up with a master plan? Yeah, sure, but it's always their decision. But I'll give them uh, a list or suggestion or talk to them and variously advise them. I'll give them a script. One of my favorite questions for an archi any architect is, uh, tell, us the, tell us about a project you completely butchered or screwed up or you know that it went wrong, and what did you learn from it? And I... What I cultivate mostly with clubs is I want them to feel comfortable with the person they're dealing with. Uh, they should not judge the, the plan that that person comes up with. They should judge the commitment of that person to working with that club. And uh, sort of the standard little reference point is when you go out with an architect who's really skilled and, and thoughtful, you should come back from a walk learning things about that golf course that change how you view it. That, to me, is the most important test. So I, I work more with clubs in terms of how to conduct those kind of interviews. I'm not, I'm not going to tell them who to hire. Uh, there are too many good, talented people out there, but I want them to know that some of the good, talented people out there haven't won majors, and um, you know they, they might not know how to make a, a tie or, or, or feel comfortable in a boardroom, but they sure feel comfortable uh, on, a, on an excavator. So mm -hmm. maybe that's where they ought to go watch it. Just like I tell people when you... When you're talking to your superintendent, I always tell green committees, if you have your, when you have your meetings, go meet in the maintenance building. Don't meet in the office uh, boardroom. Go, go on their terrain. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing I, I convey to clubs is don't be dazzled by a sales pitch because that's, the le that's got the least to do with design work. A sales pitch is designed to, to get work, but that's got nothing. And there are some great salesmen out there, but that does not necessarily translate into being a great designer or being committed to the restoration of the course. So, I, you know, basically what I do is I, I hand them the batteries to a bullshit detector mm -hmm. and then try yeah. to show them how to operate the bullshit detector. Do you have a favorite project that you've, not even that you were involved with, but a, a restoration that, that just blew your mind about how good it turned out? Well, uh, my two favorite projects are the ones closest to my home. Which are? Uh, I basically led the development of a Petai municipal golf course in my hometown. I live in Bloomfield, Connecticut. I got the town to hire Petai for a dollar. He generously volunteered. Oh, for Wittenberry? When I his arm. I've written about this. There's all chapter about this in uh, yeah. wide, wide Open Fairways. And then I kind of uh, sat there and helped with the project. And then Tim Liddy is... Uh, Right-hand man did most of the work, and Pete was on hand about seven, eight times. And 20 years later, what is it now, 14 years later, the golf course is still doing really well. So that was fun. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about construction. And then the other one down the road, 
Also in my town of Hartford, there was a completely run-down, decrepit, abandoned, one of the standard uh, management companies let it go to ruin, two of them actually, Keeney Park, which is a Devereaux Emmett. Uh, front nine was Devereaux Emmett, back nine was Robert Jack Ross from the 30s. Emmett did it in 28, and uh, it was in terrible shape. And I got involved with an architect who used to work for Greg Norman. His name is Matt Dusenberry. Yeah. He lives in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. uh, he put me on his team as the historical consultant. He won the national bid for an RFP with the city of Hartford. They hired him. And I, I worked with Matt, and uh, I was stunned at what he and his shapers and the, and, and the construction crew did to bring back, or in some cases recreate, uh, kind of a museum piece of, of uh, Devereaux Emmett restoration. And uh, it opened last a year and a half ago, and it's doing great. And oddly enough, it's now stealing rounds from my beloved Wintonberry Hills to beat <laughs> Dykor, so <laughs> I feel funny about that. But it's too much success uh, for you. That restoration of the Emmett course really was an amazing eye-opener for me about how an inventive design team uh, with very limited budget and working with all sorts of city handicaps of contracts and so on could do a fabulous job. And I got interested in enough, in it enough, uh, and then I got contacted by uh, St. George's Golf and Country Club, which is Devereaux Emmett's best uh, untouched and or restored golf course. Gil Hans was involved in that. And they asked me to do a club history, so I just finished the book. Actually, I finished it this week, uh, writing uh, my next book, which is uh, about Devereaux Emmett and Long Island Golf and St. George's Golf and Country Club. So that will come out in July. Oh, nice. Here with the uh, manuscript and the, the 200 photographs and design plans and helping design the book now. So um, those two projects, Winbury Hills, the Pete Dye course, and then the, the Matt Dusenberry's restoration of Emmett's Keeney Park. And, and it's been a tremendous hit. They also, it's nice that they had an old Tudor-style clubhouse that they restored, and it's now doing 32,000 rounds, and it's busy, and it's great, and it's very diverse. Uh, the black community, the white community, everybody comes out, and uh, it's kind of a diverse mix that is representative of the, the community, which is, uh, to me, the, the mark of a golf course. The tee sheet on a golf course should look as diverse as the community. I love when that happens. Yeah, it sounds like the culmination of all your efforts kind of coming to fruition with the, that project. Well, now I got stuff. Yeah, it was the time. Yeah. I, I didn't see it coming. I, I didn't think that they could get it done that well. Uh, but, you know, we dug up old... Um, Olmsted Brothers uh, plans for the city park system. Hartford had uh, the, one of the finest public park systems in the country, and we found the old plans that the Olmsted family, not Frederick Law Olmsted, but his son and the Olmsted company had done for the city, and then restored a lot of the viewscapes and the plant material, and that was all part of the restoration as well. Uh, earlier in, in this uh, discussion, I asked you a question. You said you're always asked about the connection between pol your political science knowledge and, and golf course architecture and how you apply the two. Let me ask you this. You've spent your life asking other people questions and doing research about other things. Are there any questions? What's the one question you'd like someone to ask you that you've never gotten? Uh, would you please build this golf course and here's half a million dollars to design? <laughs> That's the one question I haven't gotten. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a good one. I think I don't think you're alone in that. I think anybody yeah, who's in the business would always ask me, what's it take to become a golf course designer? The answer is someone dumb enough to hire you. Yeah. Uh, Just I, I actually kind of believe that uh, or to have the faith in you. Uh, I, I, I'll i say this. What I admire uh, in designers is their ability to draw and uh, to 
not not put it on AutoCAD, although that's a separate skill. But uh, I I love it when people, even with a simple line drawing, I'm, I've tried this, and it's I've saved a few laughable versions of it with plus and minus grades, and I can sketch something out. But it, boy, it looks just like chicken scratch compared to you know one of Gil Hans's simple designs or Matt Dusenberry or. Uh, a lot of guys, they, their drawings are so lovely and elegant and suggestive. And to me, that's that's a fabulous skill. It comes from years of refining your ability to draw to get it down to a few basic lines. Um, and uh, that's a skill I wish I had. It's I never too have. late, Brad. You could, you know, take some drafting classes and work on it. I could see you with a with an easel, you know, and a, like a paintbrush and a smock. I'm a writer, so I'll just keep writing. Okay. <laughs> um, a couple quick questions as we as we get out of here. Real simply, Dick Wilson or Robert Trent Jones? Hey, uh, it's interesting. I was uh, I just wrote a, a story about this for Met, um, the Met Golfer because I was involved with Brian Silva in the restoration of Meadowbrook on Long Island, which is a Dick Wilson course, uh, and I'd seen this with Doral. So my sense was that. Dick Wilson was a better designer uh, in terms of angles and the way go- uh, features uh, and particularly bunkers came out across the line. I don't think his, I think his work suffered because he wasn't, he didn't have the construction crew that was sophisticated enough to build what he, what he designed. Uh, but some of this stuff to me is really interesting uh, uh, with angles. Um, I, I never, how should I put this? Uh, I thought Trent Jones's best work was done by early. He uh, was over by the early by the mid fifties. Agreed. And he became a three, and he wasn't well served, and he was churning out stuff, and he was trying to make money, and uh, it became, you know, I'll put it this way: thirty years from now, I don't think anyone's going to remember much of anything that Trent Jones did. Mm. I just don't think it had a lasting effect uh, at the moment that. At the time, back then, in the 40s and 50s, it was interesting and revolutionary, but a lot of it was bombast and uh, salesmanship. Well, do you think Dick and, Wilson... And what, he did, what he did to plow over classic golf courses to me was a shame. But uh, that was sort of the contempt that a Depression-era survivor had for the folks who never made it through to the other end of the 50s. and It was terrible what he did. <laughs> Well, he wasn't the only one, but he was uh, the leading name for sure. Do you think Dick Wilson will have any relevance in 30 years? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I I, I would need to see NCR and Moraine to to judge that. Um, I've been impressed with what Brian Silva did at Meadowbrook. That's a good question. well, I'll put it this way. He did less bad work than Trent Jones. So uh, he, I think he had a higher standard. Mm-hmm. But I, it's hard to know. I, I kind of think that the nightmare is basically over. And uh, but the 30-year nightmare of uh, what happened to golf course design. And uh, the guys who worked for Jones and um, Dick Wilson didn't help anything and uh, didn't help much. And uh, I think we're seeing a, a big... What's the word? Uh, going back and just forgetting about that, that nightmare era. I exaggerate, of course, slightly here. No, we've, I've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast, so anybody who's listening will be well, well-versed in this whole topic. That 30-year period was a, kind of like a, an aesthetic black hole. 
you have a beautiful site, sand, some natural movement to it, core, you know, 250 acres or whatever. What architects are you, Brad Klein, interested in hiring in addition to working with you to come and build that golf course? kind of a trick question uh it's not meant to uh, be a trick question I'm, I'm, you know the obvious there's some obvious answers i want to see if if you uh would go a different direction i always prefer to avoid the obvious answer um uh i have some in mind but they're not ones that are famous or yeah you know I, i'm not going to answer that one because there there's so many good talented people um i i I certainly would, um, I'd need help on the routing. To me, the routing is really hard. I have always had trouble. Unless If it's an open site, I can't screw up. But I've tried to do routings of, of constricted courses on my own. I can't do it. Then I have a guy like, seen what Tim Liddy has done, uh, who's great at routings, for example, um, or Gil, or uh, Matt, Jay, uh, Blasey. A lot of these guys are unbelievable at routing. I'm, that's That, to me, is a really hard skill. So I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to answer that one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think we, we probably gleaned enough out of that non-answer that we could figure out which direction you might go. <laughs> um, last question, and I don't know that you would, you would say this, but I'm going to eliminate it off the top. If you're going to take somebody to one golf course anywhere, in, the, I'll keep it to the United States, somebody, who, somebody who's not into golf course architecture, but you want to light that fire, you want to turn them on and show them the light, and... Where did you take them outside of National? Oh, I take them to Essex County Club in uh, Manchester by the Sea, New Hampshire, uh, Massachusetts, which to me is the best Ross course they ever did. Uh, it's fabulous landforms. It's a lot of hills. It's some trees. It's rock. Uh, it's stunning. It was the hero of my book when I wrote that Discovering Donald Ross book. That was the hero, mm-hmm. and I'm so fascinated by it. So I would take them there. You know. It, to me, that's more enchanting than, and then the other place might be Old McDonald, um, because um, I like the way Doak and Urbina's routing reveals the site uh, slowly. It doesn't just jump at you. It, 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 it hides it, it exposes it, it reveals it, it goes away, it comes back, uh, and the landforms are fascinating. So I would say those two on opposite ends of the United States. Um, yeah, Old McDonald and the Essex County Club. Mm-hmm. Do you where do you where do you feel like Old McDonald spills to that crescendo? Is it like when you get around like like starting at thirteen, you know you get teases of that that corner of the property throughout. What do you, what's your thought behind that? Not thirteen, no. Uh, it might be fifteen. Uh, the fifteenth green, the third shot into fifteen is when the thing starts going nuts, um, and then it doesn't light up till the end. Um, what I love about that is. You don't know where you are when you start, and then you come over the hill on three, the um, the Sahara mm-hmm. hole, over the you know the, the dunes, and then boom, the whole thing is revealed. Then you sort of circulate in there for about two uh, two hours, and you get glimpses of the sea, and you get up to eight, seven, and eight, and then you come back down, and you circle around, and then you kind of get confused, and then you get lost, and you go up hills, and then you that crescendo. The last four holes are all five hundred yards plus, or they play that way. And, but they they don't play that long. Uh, they just feel big, and uh, that kind of culmination is stunning to me. Yeah, it's I, a rhythm of a routing. I think it's fabulous. Good. Well, Brad, I'll let you go. I know you've got a lot to do. 
thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I think that was great. All right, thanks. Well, I thought that was a pretty substantive conversation. You know, it's interesting with a guy like Bradley Klein, who has such a depth of knowledge on golf architecture and who's written extensively about it himself. It's almost hard to know what kind of questions to ask him to try to explore territory that that might be new or fresh for him. That conversation could easily have gone a hundred different directions, but I hope we hit on some good, interesting, and pertinent topics. I think he was especially good on the media, especially what was happening in the 1980s and 1990s during the National Golf Foundation's Build-A-Course-A-Day fiasco that introduced our world in a very uh, in a very heightened and accelerated form, residential and developmental and cart path golf, to disastrous effects that we're still recovering from. And I think Brad shed some light into how the golf media was complicit in allowing that to happen, or at least not being critical enough of this, this runaway environment that was occurring across the landscape. <laughs> he was also great when it comes to the future of golf design, the business of golf course design, what golf courses are going to have to look like in the future, how they're going to have to be built, how they're going to have to be affordable and sustainable, what kind of improvements we can make, and who the architects and builders and shapers are going to be who create these golf courses. I mean, that's a topic that's right in his wheelhouse, the cost of construction, affordability, how golf relates to its environment and its community, and he slayed that. That was good. I know the audio quality on that telephone call was not great. Um, I'm trying to get the guests to join me via Skype or some other VOIP platform, but uh, it doesn't always work, but we'll try in the future to kind of get that cleaned up and get some nice round, full audio for you. But choppy phone connection or not, Brad Klein was great. Thank you, Brad, for joining me. You all out there know where to find me. I'm at feedtheball.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at feedtheball. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or Google Play and subscribe to the podcast. That means it will automatically download when I release a new episode. It'll go straight to your phone or tablet or however else you listen to the podcast. If you like the show, please leave a star rating or review. You can also leave comments for me on my website. I always appreciate getting those. If you do not like the show, don't know why you're listening, uh, please move on. Do not leave a star rating. (laughs) Actually, do even if you don't like the show, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As usual, I'd like to thank the Sundogs. And until next time, everybody take care.